Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Chief Constable Simon Byrne has today tendered his resignation to the Northern Ireland Policing Board with immediate effect. The head of the PSNI has fallen on his sword. Simon Byrne had been under unprecedented pressure to quit. At 10, news of a major data breach involving thousands of police officers and staff in Northern Ireland. Details of every PSNI officer's name, rank and where they're based were released in a major data breach today. I am deeply sorry about what has happened when we have seen an industrial scale breach of data that has gone into the public domain. In the end, he seemed to have lost the confidence of everyone, not least his own officers, a first in policing here. Dissident Republican terrorists claim to be in possession of that material, which caused serious alarm for police officers. The final nail was a court ruling. The two junior officers were unlawfully disciplined by the PSNI. They had unwittingly arrested the victim of the Sean Graham massacre on the Ormer Road in Belfast at a commemoration to mark the event. Two junior officers were wrongly disciplined two years ago to avoid any threat of Sinn Féin abandoning its support for the PSNI. It's been another day of turmoil around the Chief Constable Simon Byrne. A short time ago, the DUP submitted a motion of no confidence in him. What next for the PSNI? Do Sinn Féin also have questions to answer? And what does this fiasco tell us about policing and politics here? I'm Sharon O'Neill and I'm joined by the Belfast Telegraph security correspondent Alison Morris and Northern Ireland editor Sam McBride. Well, between the three of us, guys, we've got decades on the beat ourselves. I don't think I can remember a time like this in policing in Northern Ireland. Can you? Well, I mean, I was there. I was working as a journalist when the RUC became the PSNI in 2001. And I always say, I remember coming into work that Monday morning and phoning the press office and they said, PSNI press office, can I help you? And that was the change. And that was quite a turbulent time because no one knew what what to expect. There was a situation with Wood Chen Fein sign up to police and structures, and that was quite a big story at the time. We had Matt Baggett's handling of the five protests, which became a huge story. But through all those allegations of, you know, political policing or incompetent policing or what Sam was covering recently in terms of corruption and how that was handled or not handled in the PSNI, I've never known for one officer to become such a story at this point in time. You know, Simon Byrne was the story and that's where he had a real problem trying to survive what happened because 
the questions were all to be asked of him and he was avoiding answering them because he wouldn't speak to us. You know, we had one police and meeting, police and board meeting where he snuck out via the back door and then a second one where he walked out, made, you know, read from a brief handwritten statement, just shouted that he wouldn't be resigning, got into his, you know, four by four and drove off. So I do think that, you know, it was increasingly obvious that he couldn't escape this or couldn't survive this. From my recollection, I think this could be the first chief constable to resign. Certainly within the PSNI anyway. I mean, that certainly sends yeah. something about the state of policing, doesn't it? We had an incident where you remember George Hamilton stood, stood aside for a while. That's right. On and Judith Gillespie became the interim um, chief constable, which was historic in itself because it was the first woman mm-hmm. to ever hold that role. But he survived that, you he know, did. and he survived. He survived that and even on to visit, finish his time. And even Matt Baggett, who, you know, we talk about confidence in policing, but by the end of, of his tenure, and obviously he didn't expect to arrive here for the flag protest to happen, but, you know, he managed to survive that. Um, Simon Byrne, I think, just, you know, had he left when his fight, when his contract was over, his legacy might have been very different. But I wonder, does he think sometimes when he accepted that additional three-year contract in April of this year, was that the way to smooth? Because that now his, his legacy is very different, isn't it? Sam? I think that when you look at Simon Byrne's tenure, he exercised pretty consistent bad judgment throughout it. Uh, there are people who speak highly of Simon Byrne in personal terms. They say they say that he was a genuine person who was trying to um, help individual police officers when he saw they had difficulties. But he was somebody who would shoot from the hip and he would make a decision on the hoof and it would um, often lead to significant problems down the line. That's that's what's happened now with this Ormo situation. It was driven by him and he managed to put off the evil day, if you like, of reckoning for that, but it ultimately came. And when, when when you look at what he did, I mean, he prioritised things like changing the uniform of the PSNI. I don't think there was any great belief in the community that the uniform was so problematic. I know there were arguments that it was slightly better for a, a slightly better fit, I think, for female officers or something. I mean, surely that could have been dealt with without a whole redesign. He re, he changed the badge of the police and then had to abandon that. He even got into things like tampering with the name of the PSNI on the Facebook pages. I mean, really esoteric stuff that frankly doesn't matter. That was what he got into. And meanwhile, you've got this juggernaut heading towards the cliff and he's not on top of that. And I think that's his legacy here, that he was on the surface, perhaps during things like COVID. Um, he seemed like somebody who in a difficult circumstance was not doing a completely disastrous job, but just every few months there was a catastrophe and very often they came directly to his door. It was his decisions that led to those problems. But you remember that time, uh, it was shortly, not too long after he uh, was appointed, he appeared in Cross McGlenn. Uh, outside the police station with, you know, uh, I think it was five police officers heavily armed. I mean, that was that was a gaffe in anyone's books. Do you think from that point on, it was almost like, well, that was one mistake. There's going to be more, you know, his card was marked almost from then. Alison, you know. That wasn't, that wasn't the first mistake. He was yeah. only in the job a matter of weeks. When he said, you know, we're going to come after the distance, the right. dissidents, and we'll come after them, and we'll even come after their children. I mean, at that point in time, you know, in Republican areas, they were calling them, you know, Simon Byrne, the child catcher. I mean, literally threatening to remove people's children from their homes was talk about not understanding the situation he had landed himself into. Um, and to do things like that really 
got the bike. So it's like it's not propaganda coup for the dissidents and it put mm-hmm. those ordinary uniform officers who have to go out and patrol the beat at even greater risk. The Cross McGlenn stuff, the fact that it was Christmas Day, you know, Merry Christmas from Cross McGlenn. Here's a load of men carrying huge rifles, you know, as if they're about to go and invade a small country. Um, that I mean itself was bizarre. And I do and I do know that after that people said that he was told not to do that. But the fact is that he isn't a man who listens to advice. Um well what what I was told by, by someone who knew him quite well is he listens, he just doesn't hear. Um and he wasn't wasn't paying attention to that. And then we went on to a series of gaffes after that. But you can survey those things if you're doing the good, you know, if you're producing the goods and if you're producing police and that people feel yeah. that they have confidence in. But the, th- the fact is, he'd lost public confidence. And, you know, we always say polls, uh, that Belfast Telegraph poll showed just 16% confidence. They're a snapshot of public opinion at a particular time. They can't be changed. They can't be turned around. Political parties do it all the time. Well, he'd lost public confidence. And at the very same time, he'd lost the confidence of his rank and file. He'd lost the confidence of his superintendents. And then when he lost the confidence of the civilian staff, who rarely say anything. I mean, they don't put their hands above the parapet at all. The fact that he'd lost their confidence, um, the DEP were issuing motions of no confidence in them. It was coming at them from all angles. You can't survive that. You just can't. You know, it's a completely different situation. You can lose public confidence and maintain the confidence of your officers and regain that. You can lose the confidence of your officers but have public confidence, which is what's happening to Drew Harris in the South, and you can regain you regain that, but you can't survive, it, you know, having absolutely no confidence from many quarters and also having what we are hearing behind the scenes is, you know, quite a serious fallout with members of the senior management team who were barely on speaking terms near the end of that tenure. So, no, I mean, I, I think that he was gaff prone. He wasn't someone who listened and he did have very good qualities as well. Sam said about tampering with that logo. That shows a, a lack of understanding about what went on here previously because Patton and that PSNI logo you will remember, Sharon, that was such a big deal at the time, you know, removing the RUC logo. It what was, was it yeah. It became such a massive, massive deal, especially for unionists and former police officers. To get, you know, an agreement on that was a massive political development. And for him to just waltz in and go, come on, we'll change this. He didn't realise how big, big an impact that was going to have or how big a story that was. And I suppose that's where when we do get officers from the outside coming in here and senior officers, and some have done a very good job. They do need proper advice and they do need to be briefed properly. And they also get your history books out and learn where it is you're coming yeah. to police. You know, know the landscape. Sam? I think that when you look at some of these incidents, they're particular to him. He made a snap decision and he got it wrong. And he often was quite pig-headed about being willing to accept that he'd got it wrong and try to back down. But in some of these incidents, I mean, when you when you think about the 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 really significant symbolism of the PSNI badge, as Alison has said, as anybody with a hint of knowledge of Northern Ireland would understand instantly, that was not simply a decision by Simon Byrne. That was a decision by key people around him. He ultimately is the top guy and he bears the the uh, the greatest responsibility for that but my goodness i mean the idea that that gets through all of the layers of command in the psni both civilian and in terms of the officer class i mean it's just astonishing and i think what that hints at is how there is this broken system here it's not working he's gone that's going to be part of the um, move towards trying to fix it but it's my goodness it's still i think going to get worse before it gets better Obviously, we had the Ormaru judgment. Do you think that directly led to his resignation or do you think it was a combination of everything? And 
give us a bit of a, a bit of the background to the Ormoro judgment as well, so that you know people who maybe don't know by this stage. That time, and I suppose when you think back to what happened on the Ormoro that day, all of that was amplified because it was lockdown. There wasn't a lot going on. It was a second lockdown. People were weary of it. They were tired of it. Um, and I do remember the, you know, the Ormo families and, and I think it was Billy McManus from the Ormo families had put a statement on Facebook saying, look, the commemoration isn't the same this year. It's only families showing up in their socially distanced group. Please stay away. Don't be coming along or we'll ask you to go home. And that was put all over social media. And then they attempted to have obviously that commemoration. And what happened happened. And there's 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 failures on all levels that went on there because I have said it before and I'll say it again. Would you have sent two probationary officers on their own up the shankle on the day of the shankle bomb without saying to them, lads, just remember what data is, tread carefully, you know, tensions could be high. Would you send them in the Anniskillen on the day of the Anniskillen bomb without briefing them that this had happened and it was the anniversary and that people might be, you know, at this point in time, feelings might be very tense. Would you send them into Derry and Bloody Sunday anniversary without telling them? And yet they were just, you know, thrown in. Young, yeah, young constables, one from the south, who clearly didn't know, you know, a lot of the, the history that we would know. They should have at their morning briefing being said, you know, and what happens is they're brought in the morning, they're saying, you know, there's a bench warrant out for such and such, keep an eye out for, for them, you know, do a bail check on this address here. And by the way, it's the anniversary of the Sean Graham bookmakers. Just watch what you know, tread carefully today. That's all that had to be told and that would have put a, an end to that. That would have solved that problem. So there's failure number one. Then obviously they're in video contact with the sergeant throughout. They're saying that they had approval for what they did. But the optics of arresting Mark Sykes, who was shot numerous times in that attack and was one of the survivors, um, coming just a year before an ombudsman report, which was damning of the RUC investigation at the time, into that, the optics were shocking. And, you know, I come from an isolated community. The feelings were, my phone was red hot that day. It never stopped. People were furious and it did need to be dealt with. But when I think, you know, a proper, you know, leader and a proper chief constable could have dealt with that and could have diffused that very easily. He could have immediately come out, you know, and said, I'll come and meet the families, whether it be standing outside in the street because of COVID or by Zoom. Um, he could have came and spoke to them. He could have explained what happened and said, look, these are, you know, two kids. One hasn't even been here six months. The other one's from the south. He really didn't know, you know, and try and just diffuse it that way and be a proper leader. Instead, I think he panicked. Um, and that's what happened. And also there's a lack of political nuance there because I don't know who he was taking advice from to and who was speaking to him. Clearly, you have Jerry Kelly and Michelle O'Neill saying that this is really serious because for them it was really serious. You know, they're getting it in the neck from their voters as well, saying, What are you going to do about this? But he should have known that at a time when distant Republicans were still very active, and by the way, among the people under threat from distance at that time were Michelle O'Neill and Jerry Kelly, who'd showed up to the police recruitment event and been given threats by uh, dissidents at that time. They're not going to walk away and give the distance a green light to go go mental. They're trying to get into government in the south. Can you imagine Sinn Féin stand for election in the south when they don't support police and, and justice in the north? This is never going to happen. Just ignore them and deal with it as a chief constable in the best way you can to defuse the situation and find out what went wrong internally. And that's what he should have done. He should have tried to black out all the noise that was going on around him and paved a way through that. And it could have been done. And I know it's easy to say all that with hindsight, but it could have been. It could have been handled better. And Sam, a judge then obviously ruled that uh, the two officers who ironically 
represented that new beginning to policing because one was a young Protestant, one was a Catholic, were unlawfully disciplined and the judge ruled that uh, there was political pressure brought to bear. Do you think that how Byrne handled himself afterwards in that decision said more about him and his psyche? And do you think Sinn Féin have questions to answer as well? Well, I think that it it did expose what Simon Byrne thought of the role of the police in Northern Ireland. But I think it did something much deeper than that. I think it pulled back the curtain on how the police actually operate in Northern Ireland. Lots of people, um, we as journalists, lots of members of the public, lots of politicians fully understand that the police cut deals all the time with politicians, with paramilitary bosses, with so-called community leaders. They know who these people are in, in many cases who are members of illegal organisations and they choose not to arrest them. In some cases, they're choosing not to arrest them because they're informers. And whatever people think about informers, that makes sense. You need to have intelligence on what's going on in these organisations. And if you lift all these people, clearly you don't. In many cases, it's not because they're informers. It's because the police have got themselves into this position where they see their role as quasi-political. They're not simply enforcing the law and saying, I'm sorry, you're running a brothel or you're money laundering. That's illegal. We're going to lift you. They then have this second consideration about what would this mean? What would this lead to? What about the politics? of this? Who would be annoyed about this? Would there be a riot after this? And that's a catastrophic um, stance for any police force to take. It might have been might have been justifiable for the police in the early days of the peace process to have thought like that. I'm not saying it was, but I can understand why some people would say that the, that it was it was a very unusual position where Sinn Féin were coming in from the cold, where the IRA hadn't got rid of its weapons, but it was moving towards that, where loyalism um, was was it not getting rid of its weapons, but largely wasn't using them, um, certainly outside their own paramilitary organisations. Um, but 25 years after the peace process started, after the Good Friday Agreement, um, I mean, it's just just extraordinary. And so these people have been embedded. And in this instance, it is obviously Sinn Féin, who are, who are a major political party, the biggest political party. But um, I think people who support Sinn Féin should be very cautious about rejoicing at what they see here, because what happens in one direction will happen in another direction. This has exposed something that I think remarkably, when you look at what was put before the High Court, the PSNI did not think this was even controversial. That's the, that's the import of what they did here. They opened up their books, they handed them over. Yes, one logbook from the from the chief constable was handed over reluctantly, but what, what was said by Mark Hamilton, the deputy chief constable, was an affidavit. It was on the record, and he was quite open in saying that this was a very significant factor. Well, it should not be a significant factor at all. It ought to be for the police to say, have these two guys done anything wrong? If they haven't, that's it. We will deal with it, as Alison says, in other ways. There are ways that you can try to de-escalate this, try to show that you understand the absolutely justified sense of annoyance, of anger, of victimisation that people felt around that, um, but not by creating some injustice for another person who is innocent in all of this in the eyes of the law. So, I mean, it, it was a messy situation, but I think that's that's the real problem here. It's not simply about getting rid of one or two or three or four senior police officers and starting anew. This is so embedded within the PSNI that it's about completely rewriting how they police Northern Ireland. And do we want that? Can we do that? Mm. I'm not sure that's that's a very messy position to be in. Good point there, Sam, because Alison, it raises issues. It would be very interesting to see exactly what the decision making was in relation to the Bobby Story funeral, in relation to the Pitt Park, the Loyalist uh, mass uh, gathering, in relation to the other issues, say the flags protests in the past. What's your take? We, we do we do know some of that and we do know how that operates. So what Sam's talking about 
is what they call as community impact assessment. So before they go into a certain area to service an individual who's high profile in an area that they may consider hard to police. So like, for instance, I'll just pull somewhere off the top of my head. Say they're going to go to the Ardoin and arrest someone who might have a bit of a profile. They do a community impact assessment, which means they ask the community police officer who knows that area better than anyone else. What will be the impact of this? Do we need extra officers? Could this cause a rat? Could this cause a street disturbance? What do we need to do? And then either say, you know, no, that's fine. Nobody will care less if you arrest them or, yeah, maybe, you know, send back up or have back up ready or waiting, you know, close by just in case something kicks off. You have situations like Pitt Park and that also you can, can attach that to those very large paramilitary funerals where there's a decision not to go and intervene at the time because of, first of all, the chance for street disorder and someone to get injured, but also because of the impact on what that does in police in long term when they're seen, especially in certain sets of maybe like a funeral. With Pitt Park, they did actually go and arrest, I think, 22 people after that and charged three. One had their charges dropped by the court, two are still going through the court. So they will say that's hard we police. They call it, I think uh, the name for it is worst case scenario policing. So our bet, and so they look at to see what would the worst case scenario be in this. So what will we do different? Um, and a lot of that's to do with then gathering gar- body worn footage, having you know cameras on top of of Land Rovers, and then going in and identifying the people who the suspects later, and then questioning them about that at a later date. People find that very really frustrating because they go, why don't they just you know storm in with their buttons and arrest everybody? But that wouldn't be good policing. And, you know, I agree with some of those assessments when they make it, however difficult it might be for people to understand. And that's what could have been done differently if they genuinely believe that these people were bringing COVID regulations. And I know that those families didn't because they say we're in our bubbles and we're all standing on a pavement, you know, spaced apart. How could we be breaking the regulations? But if they believe that they did, they all had body warm cameras. All they had to do was just video it. Every single one of those people is well known to me. So they'd be well known to the local community police. And they could have said to them afterwards, if we believe you've breached the COVID regulations, would have still been a story. Because the police in England actually did this, the Birmingham bomb families, they actually give them fines for breaching right. COVID regulations. So it still would have been a story. But at the same time, too, someone could have said, let me have a look at that. Are we going to find these people? We were coming near the end of COVID at this stage anyway. I always think, you know, those regulations will look back at that inquiry and say this is meant to be a health care situation. It wasn't meant to be to divide the community. And when I don't want to go off on a tangent, I don't know how many times I say it during that lockdown. You need to be really careful because this will end. This pandemic will end. And at the end of this, police still have to police their communities and people still have to get on with the police. And if police are, you know, police and barbecues and family gatherings and commemorations, which are really unnecessary if they're happening outside, harder to then repair that. And then this came along. You know, this was not a police a police role and never should be. I always thought that COVID regulations should have had like wardens, like city centre wardens, who handed out fines and let the police get on with actual yeah, for, police work for, and people for, who are committing crime. I think, in, in, you know, in a separate issue to that, put, putting the Ormer Road issue to his, aside and, and looking at kind of the wider issue of policing, you know, they have, you know, you always heard about, you know, police saying they'll follow the evidence uh, without fear and favour. But they, you know, the political side of policing seems to have, it's always intertwined with policing, but they seem to have... Is it fair to say that they have it's become such so embedded within policing now that they have almost kind of lost track of what policing's about well, I, in a sense? 
I think that what what Alison talks about is essentially about police tactics. So do the police sit back in a riot, for instance, or in a in a scene where they think there might be public disorder and try to absorb that rather than firing baton rounds, rather than getting out CS gas, what whatever it might be? Do they try to absorb that? There are arguments around that. I'm not qualified to get into who's right or who's wrong there, but I can totally understand why they do that in good faith. And there's no issue with that. The real problem here that I see is that the PSNI, in some instances, it's it's not about the tactics in arrest so-and-so, it's that they have no interest in arresting them whatsoever. Okay. Um, not not despite the fact, or not 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 because they're ignorant of who they are and the fact that they're a leader of a of a of a um of a dangerous illegal paramilitary organization, but because of that, that is what protects them. Um, and so you 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 had a situation where what was it two years ago when there was rioting on the Shankill Road and Lanark Way? I was standing in the middle of um, the riot one night and there were kids of about 10, 12 years old, one of the most depressing things I've ever seen in journalism so long after the Good Friday Agreement. Kids who had grown up after Paisley and McGuinness had gone into power sharing together. That's how young they were, being shown by men in balaclavas, you know, six feet away from me where I could hear what they were saying, how to make a petrol bomb and where to go and how to launch it. Now, nobody believes in Northern Ireland that in the heartland of the UVF, that was anything other than the UVF directing those people. You simply don't do that there um, because they control that area. And the next day, the PSNI came out and said they had no evidence that this was paramilitary led. I mean, it's just farcical. I was standing there. Nobody believes it. And there, w- there was an extraordinary quote in a book by Aaron Edwards, um, which is just out quite recently, where he talks about the period after the flag protests. And the police were very worried about the first anniversary of that. Rightly, they were worried about it. And he quotes a senior anonymous police officer who said to him that they decided to get clever with the, with the East Belfast UVF in particular. And they went after their money, they went after their rackets, they went after their um, their drug empires, they went after their loan sharking, all of that stuff, and they cut them off at the knees through their money. But then he said this extraordinary thing. He said, and we gave them the message, we will keep doing this until we get through the anniversary. So here is a police officer openly saying, albeit not with his name attached to it, that they said basically to these people, we will cut a deal with you. You keep it quiet in the anniversary and we'll back off rather than, as you say, Sharon, what the police say publicly, which is whatever about any of the politics of this. You're doing this illegality. You are a you are um, a poison in your communities. You're hurting your own communities that you supposedly exist to protect. We're going to defend those people. How can somebody in those communities have confidence that if they pick up the phone to the the PSNI that they will act on that information. I mean, I think that's that's the really sort of cancerous situation that we have here where the PSNI say one thing, but everybody knows that they're doing something different. And this case slightly pulls back the curtain on how that really operates at the top level. OK, let's talk about political unionism in relation to Simon Byrne's departure. Do you think they see this as a victory? Sorry, I think it was very short. It's probably quite short-sighted of them, to be, to be honest with you, because they, first of all, uh, agreed to extend his contract. Then, just Thursday week ago, they said that the policing board, all 19 members, had full confidence in him. The DUP knew this ruling was coming. Everybody knew this ruling was coming. So they then all of a sudden, a few days later, say, well, no one would no longer have faith in him. Um, it doesn't show a political party that was thinking long term. It shows that they're quite reactive and they're reacting quite quickly to things rather than strategically playing them out and how it might look. So for, for the DUP, I, I do hope that they think, maybe they feel that they've got a victory, but be careful what you wish for, because I suppose what we should really look at maybe anyways, 
who's going to replace him? And is it someone who they're going to dislike much more than Simon Byrne, who was actually quite mild-mannered in terms of, of how, he, how he behaved and how he policed compared to what some chief constables would be. So they may well, you know, they got their scalp, they got their man, but who, what's going to happen next is, is the question. I, I think that some politicians, while they say they don't want politics in policing, they actually mean that they don't want politics for their opponents in policing. They want to be able to pick up the phone to the chief constable and find a pretty pliable person sitting in that chair. Yeah. And so if the next person, um, male or female from wherever they come, if they actually are very robust and say, I'm sorry, I'm just not even listening to you, get lost effectively in more polite language than that. I think a lot of politicians actually, when it comes to the bit, like to have the power to be able to, in extremists, pick up the phone and get something done here. But ra rather than this being a victory for unionism, and it's really not a victory for unionism, because as Alison says, it's pretty embarrassing for these unionist parties that they sat there um, and nodded this guy's contract through. And then a few weeks later, have to fire the guy, basically, um, if he's if he's not going to resign, which he ultimately did. Uh, I think the real problem here for Simon Byrne was that he lost his officers. And I think it's very telling that he was bullish at the end of last week. But once he realised that these two key meetings were coming this week, the Superintendents Association the top brass of the PSNI and the rank and file, the police federation, he moved before they actually delivered a verdict on him. I think that would have been a catastrophic verdict for him and would have been humiliating and he didn't want to face that. And what does it say about, look, you've got a policing board that many say fell asleep during this whole affair that didn't see all the tensions going on within the police. We all know there's been tensions there for a long time. We all know there were problems within policing long before uh, Simon Byrne came along. And we know that whoever takes the job on will have a lot of controversies to take on, including the data breach, Sam, the story that uh, that you, you did. What... Is, I mean, there was a real danger at one point that the whole policing arrangements, you know, could go down the swanee, for want of a better word. And, I mean, who the heck would want this job? Well, the thing is, who, this is not what Patna had in mind. The policing board aren't meant to be a reactive body who reacts to disasters and crises. They're meant to foresee them. They're meant to always have an eye, you know, one step ahead of what's going on. They're meant to be oversight. They're not doing that. There's people on the police board, and I won't be curling in many names, but they're completely out of their depth. They shouldn't be there at all. They know absolutely nothing about policing and justice and how policing works. Um, and it's okay appointing people to these quangos to sit around and get whatever the, you know, whatever the expenses are for showing up to your one meeting a month but they actually have to know what they're doing and not just tick a box you know and that's the the problem the policing board is now going to be reviewed by the department of justice and it's right that happens but i do think it needs to be there needs to be a shake-up of it and and i do think that there shouldn't be people sitting on there just to fill seats unless you actually know something or have an interest in something or feel passionate about something you shouldn't be just taking a, a job and sit to sit on some board um, to have your name, you know, so that you can put on your CV for any future big job you're going for. Because the, the fact is that there's people on that board shouldn't be there. Um, and they've shown that in the past couple of weeks, they shouldn't be there. So it does need reform. And remember, these are the people who get to choose the, the next chief constable. So there's an awful lot of pressure on them. It's not as if they're just sitting there, you know, and they come out and make a statement. They also have a massive job at hand and they have to pick the person who's going to replace Simon Byrne and that's the thing that I get excited about because then we get to see the runners and riders and who's coming in and who isn't so um, you know the policing board are very important and it's important that when they're um, when you're nominating people to that policing board that they get it right and, and not just the political members who we talk to all the time those independents they need to be the right people as well. 
And it's so important. That's the thing. You know, policing is so important in both communities and rebuilding confidence in policing is so important in both communities, Sam, isn't it? I mean, it can't be underestimated that. And that is the thing. That's what so many people have worked so hard for for the last 25 plus years. Look, I mean, lots lots of this gets hung up on the politics of policing because of the history of Northern Ireland, and that's understandable, and it's and it's in many ways right. But actually, the vast majority of people just want a police service that when their house is burgled, when there's a car accident, whatever it is, they come, they're professional, they're competent, they have enough resources to deal with that. Um, I had an e-bike stolen, what, six months ago, five months ago, whatever it was, and walked into Musgrave Street Police Station to report it as a crime. And I have to say, my, my experience of that was I was very impressed impressed. I was surprised. I thought that the police wouldn't have much interest in a bike. I thought, you know, it's it's not worth that much money. They've got bigger problems here. They were very professional, etc. But the problem is when you speak to police officers, increasingly they say they just can't do those basic things. They're run ragged. It's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's no money to replace people who are leaving. There's going to be an outflux of people now because of the data breach, because of wider cultural problems there where people just cannot wait to get out the door. Some of them are hanging on for pensions or hanging on for other financial reasons, but they're trying to get out. And so you've got this massive, massive problem. And I think that while I said earlier, it's very embarrassing, I think, for the unionist parties on the policing board that they've screwed up here, that they haven't been on top of this. I think it's almost arguably more embarrassing for the nationalist party because the policing board was more important to them. They said, look, at the time of Patton, we need to have these strong bulwarks to stop the PSNI becoming the RUC. We need to have accountability. We need to have transparency. We need to have community involvement. That's why there are independent members on the board. That's why there, there's, a, there's a range of, of, of senior politicians there. Um, and actually, both the police ombudsman and the policing board, these two bulwarks that were meant to protect against bad policing, neither of them are really working. The ombudsman's very active when it comes to legacy cases, and I'm not saying that's not important, but when it comes to day-to-day policing, the stuff that's more important because it impacts all of us right now, um, I mean, I, I covered a case recently where there were these allegations of corruption in the in the then anti-corruption unit, people who are no longer working for the PSNI, uh, and the police ombudsman looked at a sheet of paper, two sheets of paper that had people claiming £120 for two people to get breakfast of a coffee and a croissant in a cheap cafe in Belfast. They nodded that through. They said there was no case to answer. Now, I asked them about this and they said, well, we, we were looking for something else. We weren't looking specifically for corruption in that case. I mean, that that that's what's going on here. These people are not performing their jobs and that's why it's broken. And the job doesn't have the kudos Let's be frank that it once had Alison. You know, we would have had the big hitters back in the day, everybody lining up to get the job or trying to get the job. Do you think who do you who do you fancy? I'd like to see Barbara Gray come back. I thought she was one of the most impressive deputy chief constables we had, you know, as a journalist. She was very easy to deal with, but also very sensible, measured, level-headed, wasn't going to be the person that was going to have their head turned by politics or politicians. Um, but she has a job as commissioner in the Met Police and she's even been tipped to be the head of the, she's an assistant um, commissioner and she's even been tipped to be a possible head of the, the Met Police in future. So would you want to give up a massive job like that and come back? I'm not sure. Um, people have pointed to others, people like Paula Hillman, who's currently with the Guards. She was a very senior police officer, very working class, comes from North Belfast, no nonsense, she wouldn't mess with her, you know, someone I think would do a really good job. And then we know that John Boucher had applied for that the job in, right. in 2019 and didn't get it, Simon Byrne got it over the head of him. 
he strikes me as a sort of like a, when you think about Hugh Ord. So Hugh Ord is, was an English chief constable who was successful because he'd been on Stephen's and, and he knew how this place worked. He understood the sensitivities around police and Boucher gets that as well, you know. So he doesn't come tainted, you know, with any sort of baggage from the REC, but he understands this place and he's managed to, you know, get victims to, to really trust him. He's a decent man. But what he wanted now, I think there's a role for him in legacy investigations. And he's no so nonsense. He calls it out for what it yeah. is, doesn't he? Yeah, he is. Someone suggested earlier that Emma Bond might come back. I think she might want to see the outcome of the tribunal case, the employment tribunal she took against the PSNI before that. And then there's Drew Harris, and he, you know, may want to move. He went to the guards because at that point in time, there was absolutely no chance he was ever getting the job because <clears throat> Sinn Féin would never have voted him through. He came from RUC Special Branch. He, has, he had all of the baggage that they didn't want in the new PSNI. But they have worked really well with them in the South. The Sinn do not have clashes with Drew Harris in the South. They just don't. Um, you know, and so would he want to come back? Well, that's a huge job with loads of prestige as well. So would you be just swapping like for like? I don't know. Um, but maybe he feels an attachment to here. Would Sinn Féin's attitude towards him change? Or would their voters still say, you know, why you put a branch man in as, as chief constable? So all of them, I think, bring something different. And then we might just get some wild cards to apply for to, you know, people who... Like Simon Byrne, who I knew nothing about mm-hmm. when he became chief constable, and then we all have to go very quickly and do our research and find out who knows this person. Rewrite your copy, think it was going to be somebody else. Exactly Sam, what I had to do that day for Simon. I didn't think he had a hope. Sam, do you think anybody, any potential talent, if you like, would be put off by how it worked out for Simon Byrne? Well, it's certainly something that anybody with any sense whatsoever would be at least considering before they come into this place. I think it's not so much the politics of it, which have always been there in in um, coming to either the RUC or the PSNI. It's a, it's obviously a very messy, problematic, complicated position to be in. But I think it's the state of the PSNI right now. It's the budget is a mess. The um, policing board is a mess. The police ombudsman is not really on top of this stuff, as, I, as I've said. The officers are mutinous um, towards a lot of their superiors. There is a massive gulf there between the rank and file and the people who are leading them. Um, do, do you want to come in and take that on? Some people have the personality, have the talent, have the desire to do that. A lot of people will think, you know what, I'll go somewhere easier. Um, two, two interesting names that I've heard in the margins over the last um, few days are Sir Hugh Ord himself, not as a full replacement, but as an interim to try to steady things because he's one of the very few people who is seen as being pretty successful in that job and who still is clearly very interested in Northern Ireland. He comes back to Northern Northern Ireland, um, etc. That would be a very interesting move if that was to happen. And the other one, which is much more of a wild card for um, the full position, is Mark Gilmore, um, someone who was the chief constable of West Yorkshire um, uh, Police Force. He is someone who um, served with Hjord very closely at one point. Um, he has he has a deep understanding of the PSNI, and he, along with Duncan McCausland, was um, treated pretty abysmally by the PSNI. So there's a bit of an irony there. Um, he lost his job quite unfairly in West Yorkshire. He was ultimately cleared of any wrongdoing there. He's not that old. um, And I just wonder, I have no idea whether either of those individuals have any interest in that. But um, often the person who gets this is not the person that that people like me or Alison or people in the BBC are thinking about. It's often, as happened with Simon Byrne, somebody that nobody really thinks is um, even going to be on the list when it gets to the final um, shortlist. Alison Morris, Sam McBride, thank you very much. The clips you heard there, we're from BBC and Sky.
When you get an Irish Independent Digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.